Well, good afternoon. It's great to see you all. And um, it has been a crazy week. We have had uh, the start of the seminary this week, and Tuesday, Wednesday, and then we had the pastor's conference Thursday to Saturday. And so I ended up teaching about 20 hours this week, and um, it was really wonderful. Uh, a bit of good news that I want to share with you all. I know that we prayed for the school last week, and um, we have the highest enrollment in the history of the school since 2004. Uh, so we have 72 students enrolled as of today, which is just remarkable. And um, it really is a blessing and a joy uh, to see what the Lord is doing there. We started a Spanish-speaking certificate program I told you about last week, and we um, have this class going in Sacramento, and uh, just be praying for, for what the Lord's doing. I was invited to uh, all of the missionaries were at the pastor's conference that are a part of our circles and Exalting Christ Ministries, and I think I was invited to about 10 different locations around the world for next year. Um, so uh, I have to have some wisdom if uh, I actually go train these pastors. I mean, it's not hard. It's, it's actually hard to say no because, you know, suffering for Jesus in Portugal or Spain or wherever it is, it's... Um, but actually, we do need to be praying for our brothers and sisters there, the church plants that they're doing. If we think ministry in the Bay Area can be difficult because so many people need Jesus and uh, don't see their need for Jesus, in Europe, it's, it's even, even worse. Um, and so keep them in your prayers. And we are uh, in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 today, verses 1 to 16. And this is a great section of scripture. I'm excited to, to bring it to you today. And, and I want to talk by way of introduction about what Paul's doing in his letter. Just remember that the book of Ephesians as six chapters was meant to be read in one church service when Paul wrote it. So when Paul gives us all of the wonderful truth in chapters one to three that we've been hearing for the past couple months, he intends the application to be Chapters 4 to 6, what he's going to now talk about. In fact, uh, God through Paul is going to get in your business a little bit today. Um, he's going to give you some commands and at least exhortations today and, and how you should live in light of everything that the Lord Jesus has done. Uh, one commentator, Ernest Best, says, Behavior is thus seen in Ephesians as both a response to what God has done in Christ and as a proper accompaniment to the praise of God. The two themes that were already present in chapters 1 through 3. So let me read these uh, verses. I'm going to actually break it up into two sections. I'm going to start with verses 1 to 6 and talk through that first half of this thought and then verses 7 to 16. Beginning in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So this first uh, paragraph in this section that we're covering today 
we see here the body of Christ. Paul's beginning to talk about this imagery. He had used it earlier in chapter 2 that Christ is the head of the church, his body. And now he is beginning to explain the implications of that. And the first thing we see in verses 1 to 6 is we have unity in Jesus. We heard it from Jesus himself when he was praying in John 17 in our scripture reading that we would be one. That we would have unity and as a result, we would have witness, we would be on mission and the world would see the unity we have and say, I want that. And that they would see in us that because we have unity, that the Father has loved us as much as he's loved the Son. So he begins in verses 1 to 3 to explain this unity. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. This is the transition. And if you go read Paul's letters, he always has this pattern, this transition. He first gives uh, instruction. We could call it doctrine. And then he gives the implications or what we would call the ethical commands. So in Colossians, chapters 1 and 2 are the mainly doctrine. And 3 and 4 are mainly application. Romans, he goes 11 chapters, that's mainly doctrine, but there is little applications woven in. But by the time he gets to chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in light of the mercies of God, I urge you to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship. So, like, basically, there's the transition. And then we have way more commands in the second part of the book of Romans. This is Paul's pattern, and it's instructive to us because this pattern is the pattern of the gospel. I was just teaching on it this past week at the pastor's conference. I was giving them tools and tips for their expository preaching, and I talked about this indicative, imperative paradigm that Paul's modeling for us, that all of Scripture models for us. Um, this is what gives us the motive for the commands. And we see it in the word therefore in verse 1. In, therefore, because of everything that's true in chapters 1 to 3, that you've been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, that you in love have been predestined for adoption, that you've been, you've been created, you're a, a God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that He prepared in advance that you'd walk in them, that the dividing wall of partition was torn down and so there's no more separation between Jew and Gentile. And those of us who were Gentiles who were without hope and without God in chapter 2, He is now brought near. And we're, we could go on and on. Chapter 3, he prays that we would know how high and wide and deep and long the love of Christ is so we'd be filled with all the fullness of God. So when he gets to chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, Therefore, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He's just explained what that calling looks like in chapters 1 to 3. And it gives us the proper motive for obedience in the Christian life. Sometimes I'll joke with my students at the school that we don't want tadpoles. We don't want big heads and no bodies in the Christian life. Some Christians think that if I just hear a good sermon and I learn something, that now I'm a good Christian. Like, the mark of a good sermon is I learned something I didn't know before. Well, tad, that's tadpoles. You know what tadpoles look like. You know, the head gets so big you can't even walk through the door. That, that's the mark of pride that, hey, I am so great as a Christian because of what I know. Have you ever met Christians like that? I have. I've probably been a Christian like that. 
who I think that I must be more godly because I know more about the Bible. But those two things don't necessarily go together. And so what this is, is learning for the sake of living in light of the gospel, walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. In fact, Paul loves to do this. Um, he, he loves to tell his audiences who they are in Jesus Christ, the indicative, to see how they then must live because of their union with Christ, the imperative. Paul says, oh yeah, remind yourself of who you are in Jesus. You're adopted as a child. You're brought into the family of God. You've been justified and declared righteous in the sight of God so that when He looks at you, He no longer sees your sin. He sees the righteousness of His Son. And you've been forgiven and your sins are as far as the east is from the west. And you've been reconciled to God so that now you're called a friend of God. You're no longer an enemy and you're part of his kingdom and you're going to rule and reign with Jesus. In fact, Paul had said in chapter 2, you've been seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus where Christ is. All of this glorious news that I need to hear this morning, that we all need to hear this morning. And then when Paul says, now walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, we go, of course. Of course, it makes sense because I'm not who I was. I was trying to think of a good illustration of this, but uh, I think the greatest or the most famous orphan story that we know of is probably Annie, the musical. I only know of it because, you know, the one line, she had to go bathroom. I don't know why that's the one line in the whole movie I remember. But you remember the story of Annie. She's an orphan. She's singing and dancing. They're talking bad about the person who's caring for them. And then Daddy Warbucks, what a name, comes in and he adopts her and brings her into his home. And now she doesn't live. She shouldn't live like an orphan anymore. But she does, doesn't she? She falls back into that pattern of living like an orphan. And she has to come to this realization of who she is now that she's in Daddy Warbucks's family. And of course, the heartwarming story is that he takes care of all of those orphans in a far, far greater way, far greater picture. Our Father in Heaven has adopted us into His family, and He's called us His own. But aren't we so tempted to think, oh, I don't really belong. I, I you know, I, I really, I'm just one sin away from being kicked out. And so because of that, I don't think I should, you know, I, 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 maybe it's the lie of, i got to clean myself up before I get back to church. You ever said that to yourself? I've said that. I've thought that. No, the one who makes you clean is the Lord Jesus. And the Father accepts you in Him. And what we sang earlier, this is what we have to preach to our hearts. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off these guilty fears. But there are implications as we begin to understand and recognize who we are in Jesus that I do want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which I've been called. I do want to please him in every way. Ed Clowney, a, a pastor from a previous generation, he writes this, the scriptures are full of moral instruction and ethical exhortation, but the ground and motivation of all is found in the mercy of Jesus Christ. We are to preach all the riches of Scripture, but unless the center hold all the bits and pieces of our pulpit counseling, of our thundering at social sins, and of our positive or negative thinking, 
all fly off into the Sunday morning air. And then he exhorts these pastors specialize in preaching Jesus. Now, this is what I was sharing with my pastor friends who were at the conference. If, and this is why, if Jesus isn't the center of the biblical story that we're proclaiming, then you all as listeners, us as hearers, conclude he's not the center of our personal story either. See, but when we preach Jesus as the center, well, then he's the center of our lives as well, and it has implications for us. So back here to to chapter 4, verse 1, Paul is urging them, exhorting them. He doesn't, this actually is not a command, instead it's a pleading with them. And he urges them based upon his own example and costly commitment. I've been put in jail in Rome, but it's worth it. It's worth it. I'm a prisoner of the Lord, but it's worth it. So walk in a manner, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the calling. Live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And he's going to explain what this means here in the, in the verses that follow. He had told the church at Philippi in Philippians 1.27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's a parallel thought. Now when he uses the word walk in a manner, walking in Jewish tradition and Old Testament understanding, as well as uh, probably the Greco-Roman culture, uh, though less certain, was used of this is our conduct. It's, it's just a picture of how we live. Now, he said we, in chapter 2, we once walked. Our former lifestyle was sin and darkness. Chapter 2, verse 2, in which you once walked, these trespasses and sins following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And then in verse 10, he had said, as I uh, quoted earlier, where his workmanship created for good works, that God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And now he says in chapter 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. God's calling sets the bar for our conduct. And what a bar it is. And the good news of, of, of the Scriptures and the New Testament and what we're going to see is that you're not alone in this. God pours out His Spirit in the New Covenant so that you're able to obey Him. What we couldn't do apart from Jesus, we can now do in Jesus. We do get these bars set in our life, don't we? We have role models that we look up to. Maybe it's the family name. that There's a bar set because of the reputation of our, our dad and, and our mom, and we want to walk in a way that is keeping the bar of the family name or the reputation of our role models. How much more when the bar is the Lord Jesus Christ? What is a life worthy of our calling well what he goes on to say is it's a life characterized by unity 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 of the spirit and the bond of peace harmony and these four spiritual graces that he are is going to talk about in verse two explain what verse three's unity of the spirit and the bond of peace look like so first humility humility is closely related to gentleness now, in Greek literature, humility was a weakness. I don't know if you knew this, but Greco-Romans, the, the Greeks and the Romans, pride was a virtue. Humility was a weakness. But here we see in Scripture that humility is one of the virtues and the marks of what it means to live in unity as the body of Christ. Why? 
because we don't look out for our own interests. We look out for the interests of others. We maintain unity in the bond of peace. And Jesus is our example. Philippians 2. We turn over there. I know you know this passage well. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, and by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So even though the Greco-Roman world said humility is a weakness, we see that humility from Scripture is godlike. After all, the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, humbled himself and took on a human nature forever so that he could die in our place for our sins so that we could be brought to God. He is the one who is the model of humility. Likewise, back in Ephesians, gentleness is the next word. Sometimes translated meekness. Again, the Greeks and the Romans considered this weakness. But the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 11 said, Come to me and learn from me, for take my yoke upon you. My my burden is easy. My yoke is light. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You remember what he says later? He says, a bruised reed I won't break. A smoldering wick I won't put out. And isn't this what brought us to Jesus, those of you who are Christians? Is that, that you came to Him and you came to realize that He is a gentle shepherd. He's a good shepherd. His yoke is easy. It's not heavy burdens to bear. It's freedom. It's freedom in Jesus. It's, it's, it's a joy And it's a light burden because he is gentle and lowly in heart. And it's interesting that in Galatians 6, Paul tells us that we should bear one another's burdens like Jesus bears our burdens. Well, we can't do it the same way. We don't don't die in the place of others, but we can share one another's and bear one another's burdens. And when we do so, Paul says we fulfill the law of Christ. Now, this maintains unity because we're willing to waive our rights and consider others and to bear their burdens. You ever have that happen where you you open yourself and you 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 tell what you're struggling with and someone prays for you and they care about you and they follow up with you and they check in to see how you're doing. And it means all the world because they're bearing your burdens. That promotes unity in the body of Christ. And the amazing thing here Paul is going to say is this isn't just the average bearing of burdens. This is the spirit-empowered ministry of bearing burdens that maybe we couldn't even bear in our own strength. And it ends up being a witness for the gospel. Third, patience. Back in Ephesians 4. Uh, This is long-suffering. It's used of God's patience with His people. I think of Jonah. God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Do you remember this? Uh, This is the name God revealed back in Exodus 33 and 34. When Moses said, show me your glory. And then God cries out his name. 
The gracious and compassionate one, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, loving kindness. And then Jonah, he gets called to go to Nineveh, who was their enemy. And Jonah says, nah, God, I don't want to do that. And he gets on a ship to Tarshish. The other way, to Spain, the other direction from Nineveh. And then he gets swallowed by a fish. We know the story. He gets spit up. Well, what's amazing to me in chapter 4 of Jonah is that when he finally is so mad, he's so mad he can die. He says, Lord, just take my life. I'm mad that you didn't nuke Nineveh. I sat here on the hill for 40 days waiting for you to nuke Nineveh and you didn't do it. God, just kill me now. Jonah accuses God and says, God, I knew you were like this. In fact, I know that you're slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's why I tried to hightail it to Spain. Because I knew this is how you were. This kind of patience and long-suffering and enduring people. In fact, the next uh, phrase in chapter 4, verse 3, when, or verse yeah 3, when he says, uh, 2, bearing with one another in love. You could translate that putting up with one another in love. That's the idea. You're bearing people that, man, I really don't want to put up with you, but because of what the Spirit's doing in my life, I want to love you and put up with you and bear <laughs> along with you. This idea of showing tolerance, the practical expressions, uh, expression of, painten, uh, of patience, this only can come from God's love for us. It comes out of His character. It's why he had prayed earlier in chapter 3 that you and I would be rooted and grounded in his love because this is the fruit of that being rooted and grounded is that we love others. We're patient with others. We're gentle with others. That we show humility towards others. And, and when he's exhorting them, it's an urgent appeal. It has a sense of a, a crisis to it. Do it now. Not like maybe later when you get around to it. He's saying this is of utmost importance. So the very first application out of everything he said in chapters 1 to 3 is you need to have unity. And you do this by walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You basically practice greatness in the kingdom, which is being a servant of all. Not looking out for your own interests. Not lording it over, but instead serving one another loving one another it's incredible now this is really easy to understand there's no deep doctrine here that's hard to understand i have to love people and be patient with them and be gentle towards them and show humility very easy to understand but i would argue it's probably one of the hardest things to live out which is why we need the Spirit of God to help us, which is why he says in verse 3, being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We desperately need the Spirit's work. We didn't create the unity. We don't create unity. The Spirit of God created unity. We're to maintain it and preserve it in His power, which is why Paul turns then to this confession of unity in verses 4 to 6. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I would point out just kind of as an aside that this is not unity at any price. This is unity rooted in a common confession. That there is one God and one Lord and one baptism and one faith. 
This isn't the unity that our world desires that says, compromise your beliefs, compromise what you're thinking. We just have to all get along and have unity no matter what. And if you don't, then somehow you are being evil. No, this is unity rooted in a common confession. And it's right here in verses 4 to 6. We have the same identity. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. Here we see the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, placing us into one body, the church. Even though we're a local congregation, there is the church universal. That is one body in Jesus. Every church meeting on Sunday proclaiming the name of Jesus is the same body. One spirit. He's the person of the Godhead who brings this unity. One hope. This goes back to chapter 1. This one hope is the hope of the gospel. The the hope of glory. Then we see that we have the same testimony. Verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now when he says one Lord... That's a little bit subversive because in Paul is sitting in a prison cell in Rome and who's sitting on the throne there? Caesar. And because of the cult of the emperor, especially in Asia Minor where Ephesus was located, those people were told they had to offer a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And instead what Paul is saying is Jesus is Lord. We have one testimony, one confession, one faith, one baptism. He's Lord on the basis of His resurrection and ascension and exaltation. This common body of belief, this one faith. Since there's only one faith, there's only one Lord. This is why Paul told the Corinthians, I am bringing to you a first importance that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried according to the Scriptures and He rose on the third day according to the scriptures that's the gospel message and the good news of the gospel is you can have forgiveness of sins and you can be right with God and adopted into his family and have all of these things from chapters one to three not by your works not by doing good things but simply by receiving and taking by faith alone this great gift and we say hallelujah this is good news and there's one baptism There's only one baptism because there's only one Lord Jesus Christ. And baptism is a mark of unity, isn't it? That we are so identified with Jesus that what we do is we go and we dunk ourselves in water to be a picture that just as Jesus died and was buried as if he had gone under the water and rose to new life, we are so identified with him that we go under the water in baptism having died with Him, having been buried with Him, and then we come out of the water in baptism, having been raised to new life. What a glorious picture of our unity in Jesus. And then we have the same family, verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. God is our Father, and His universal rule and presence is with us. And because it's being exercised, Paul had said in chapter 1, He's going to sum up everything in His Son, Jesus. Things in heaven and things on earth. Everything's going to bow to Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He's Lord. Now Paul says this is our unity, our oneness. But then what Paul has to go to in his mind is he's thinking, but we also have a great diversity in the body of Christ. And that's verses 7 to 16. 
Look back at chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led hosts of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who ascended is the one who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith. There's the idea of unity again. And the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint in which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now the reason I took this whole large passage, verse 1 to 16, is I want you to see the context of the body of Christ here, the unity. It, it goes from 1 to 16. And we see that what Paul is saying is we have unity, we have oneness in Jesus because there's oneness in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are not three gods, but one God whom we worship who exists in three persons. And that blows our mind. But this is how God has revealed Himself and so we believe it because we have one faith and one Lord and one baptism. But then he says, let's get practical about this unity. Not only are you to show the virtues, the characteristics of gentleness and humility and patience and bearing with one another, putting up with one another. He says, you also have been given gifts to serve one another. And he starts with verse 7, that they are all of grace. Christ is the giver of the gifts in verse 7. Verse 8, He's the one who gives gifts to men. Verse 11, again, He's the one who gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, the pastors and teachers. So Christ is the giver of the gifts, and He gives these gifts to each one of us, and not a single one of us misses out on these gifts. I want to encourage you, if you feel like you've never been used of the Lord and you're a Christian, and you feel like, well, I just, I don't think I could ever be used. That is not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches you've been gifted by the Lord Jesus Himself to serve the body of Christ. And you may not know what that gift is. You may not be able to identify it. And a test won't tell you. My encouragement to you is just begin serving and you will find it out. Begin to meet the needs of others and serve in the church and you will begin to see where the Lord has gifted you. And these are not simply talents. These are not you know, simply personality traits or material objects. This is a spirit-empowered gift that is given to you so that you can serve the body of Christ. His illustration in 1 Corinthians 12, if we were to turn over there, every member is necessary and every member is gifted. And the eye can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. You remember this, right? There's no Mike Wazowskis in the church, just a big eye and nothing else. He pulls out two important words here 
grace and the measure of the gift. Grace. It's all of grace. So even if we have a measure of the gift that's greater than someone else, it's not ours to boast about. It's Christ who's given the measure. Because it's all of grace. Grace is, of course, receiving something undeserved. You ever had someone be gracious towards you and give you what you don't deserve? You ever get pulled over by the cops? Never, never. No. And then you begin to brag about how many tickets you got out of, which were really grace on the officer's part if you were speeding because you deserved the ticket for breaking the law. I haven't been pulled over in recent memory, you know, just a couple years ago. That's all. I can't say it was before I knew Jesus, but... Uh... <laughs> okay, next he goes and he quotes Psalm 68. It's an Old Testament psalm that is the example of giving gifts. And, and he, he quotes it, and it's a little confusing about when he ascended on high, he led, host, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. His point is to, to, to show that Jesus is the giver of the gifts. Because in Psalm 68... Yahweh is the giver of gifts and uh, he pulls out this idea of ascending and giving and just like God comes from Sinai and ascends to Zion to Jerusalem and just like Moses ascends to Sinai to receive the tablets of the law Christ ascended from earth to the right hand of the father and when he descended I take it to be he it was down to earth in his incarnation some take it to be his burial and his death that he descended to the depths of the earth. I take it here to be talking about his incarnation, but the emphasis is not on the descending. The emphasis is on the ascending and then the giving in order that he might fill all things, and he gives gifts to men. So it goes back to chapter 1, verse 3. God the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he's given us salvation. He's given us forgiveness of sins. In Jesus, we have adoption. All of these beautiful truths of chapter one. And now he says, you even have gifts that are not vertical between you and God. You have gifts that are horizontal to serve the body of Christ. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd, the pastors, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. So what is the reason, the function of these gifts? Their purpose is for equipping and building up. Now, it's interesting here that when he says apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, he's considering them the gifts. The people are the gifts, not just the gift of pastor teacher or the gift of evangelists, but the very people themselves. And I think what Paul's getting out in this context is the Scripture itself has been given to us through the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles. These evangelists and pastor teachers then are the ones who have brought the, the book of Acts. We see this happening. And then we have the Scripture, the purpose of it being preached and taught from the pulpit on Sundays is to equip you all to do the work of ministry. To equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So it is not um, a clergy-laity distinction where the priesthood has this 
this responsibility and authority and extra giftedness that the people don't have. No, what Scripture teaches is that all of us, you and I, all of us are a priesthood of believers and that we all have gifts. In fact, this imagery is temple imagery from the Old Testament. In the temple, the Levites were to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So they were to use their giftedness in the temple and they were to offer sacrifices. In the New Covenant, the New Testament, now Paul had said in chapter 2, we're the temple. He doesn't say we're the priesthood, but he says you've all been given gifts and you're to offer gifts and serve one another so that you'd be a fit place dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, chapter 2. Chapter 4, he says, you'll have unity for the building up of the body of Christ to do the work of ministry that will attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to uh, the intended goal, the intended purpose. See, the purpose is equipping and building up. The goal is unity. Christian growth does not occur in isolation. We need each other. We need each other. And the result is maturity in Christ. In fact, this was the goal in chapter 1, verse 4, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in His presence. And now He's saying here in chapter 4 that when you serve one another as you gather together and you're equipped by the pastors and teachers and you do the work of ministry, you're building up the body of Christ into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God into maturity. And this word um, maturity here is the intended goal. Sometimes it's translated perfection. Like the book of James says, if you're able to tame your tongue, you're a perfect person doesn't mean uh, without mistake. It means maturity, the intended end and goal. It's kind of like we raise our kids with the goal that they would go out and move out and have their own families. There's no, there, I'm not making any eye contact with my adult children in the room. This is not a, this is, a, this is the idea about parenting is that we raise them up, that we want them to be parents and have kids so that we can have grandkids. Again, not a push on anything. This is the intended goal. This is a mark of maturity into adulthood, isn't it? Well, Paul here says in the Christian life, the mark of maturity is unity. And unity happens when we serve one another as the body of Christ. As we gather together. Growing up into every way into Jesus, he concludes, verse 16, verse 15. Into him who's the head, into Christ. The body metaphor reflects this already not yet tension of scripture. We're already complete in him and yet we still grow. And as we walk in unity, the lordship of Jesus remains central. He's the one Lord of our confession in verse 5. He's the one who gives grace to us individually, verse 7, as well as ministering to us through the word, verse 11, to the whole church. And as the head of the church, he rules over us, and he's the source and the goal of our growth, verses 15 and 16. I want to close with a thought on another virtue, another characteristic that's been running through this whole passage. It's love. He says, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, 
we're to grow up in every way into him who's the head in Christ. Love in this passage actually ascends to the prominent place and to the prominent place in the letter as a whole. Why? Love is the atmosphere in which unity grows. If we don't have love for one another, we won't have unity. Just as unity begins and ends the passage, so does love. Look back at chapter 4, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. The reason we put up with one another is because we love one another. And this kind of love is a love that is supernatural. It's a love that comes from the Father. We love because He first loved us, John tells us in his first epistle. Love is the atmosphere in which unity grows. Not only that, it's the goal of Christian growth. That we, speaking the truth in love, grow up every way into Him who's the head into Christ. And what had He just said at the end of chapter 3? Oh, that you would know how high and wide and deep and long the love of Christ is so that you'd be filled with all the fullness of God. And so connected to the previous section, he says, listen, this is the ultimate test of our church's health, our church's maturity, our church's growth. It's, it's not merely the numbers. It's not that we have rock and music. I don't know if we do or not. We don't, I mean, on a cajon, I don't know how much rock you got. You know, it's, it's, it's the maturity and the test of our, our health as a church is do we love one another? Do we have unity? Are we showing gentleness and humility and patience and bearing with one another? This is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, as he said in verse 1. It's walking in the love that's given to us from the Father in Jesus and made known to us by the Spirit. This is the heart of Paul in this letter. It's the very first exhortation he runs to and all of the rest of the book when he begins to talk about husbands and wives, parents and children, the household um, relationships, even putting on the armor of God in spiritual warfare, it's rooted and grounded in love. God's love for us and our love for Him and our love for one another. What an incredible thought. And so, no more. I'm going to end. I'm going to pray. Father, thank You for this time. Thank You for this passage before us. May you do a work at Trinity Church in a way that promotes unity, that promotes love, love for you and love for one another, that we would be marked by these virtues of gentleness and humility and patience and bearing with one another in love, that we would serve one another, forgive one another, that we would be equipped from the Word as we hear it preached and teach that we would be about doing the work of the ministry, which means we aren't just serving and loving one another, we're serving and loving our community and sharing the hope of the Gospel with them that though they are disobedient to You and rebellious and deserve Your judgment, they can be forgiven in Jesus by believing alone, not by works, but by faith. Father, as we turn to the table now,
May this one common confession, this common communion that we share, may it be a picture of our unity in Jesus. I pray this in His name.